On Monday, August 8th, Tall Can Audio hits 1,000 episodes. Wait, that's still on? Who could possibly still care? And the gang is all here to celebrate. It's euphoric. It's got to be close to Nirvana. It's outstanding. For the first time ever, Maddie, Michaela, Rob, and Matt are all live in studio together. It's happening, you guys! It's happening! Oh my god! Oh my god! I wish you all were here! Is this likely to go well? Just check my notes here. No! At least it will make a lot of noise. Boom. Here comes the boom. A thousand pods and a thousand pints. I don't think I've ever been as proud in my entire life. TCA 1000 drops Monday, August 8th, wherever you find low-quality podcasts. Fuck, it's out of control. Shit. You're listening to Tall Can Audio, Canada's number one craft beer-fueled sports show. I will give you a show like you have never, ever seen before. Why? Because I can. Here's your host. No, God! No, God, please, no! 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 Matt Robinson. What's happening, everybody? As the good woman said, my name is Matt Robinson, coming to you from our studios in beautiful Bytown, Canada. Uh, Thanks once more to our friend Amy Burke, the uh, voice you heard there that brings us in and out of most of these episodes of the podcast. As most of you know, Amy is a three-time or uh, four-time now, I don't want to shortchange her, a four-time Canadian Paralympian, and uh, actually just returned this week from Brazil representing Canada once more, where she uh, won a silver medal and qualified for the World Championships in China coming up in June. So congratulations to Amy on that. Thanks, as always, for bringing us into this show. Uh, We are on Twitter and Instagram, at TallCanAudio. Make sure you give us a follow. We love to hear what you think about these episodes. And wherever you're hearing us right now on your podcast app, there's a follow button, there's a subscribe button. We'd love it if you'd hit it and stick around. Uh, Lots of great stuff continuing to come. Big show today. Uh, really excited to be joined by Glenn McGregor from CTV News. He covers the Canadian government and uh, parliament affairs here in Ottawa, as well as being on the ground for everything that has gone on here in the last several weeks. Uh, he was involved, he covered it all, uh, had a chance to speak to all kinds of people who were involved. So uh, we really wanted to get him on and just get a feel for everything that's just gone on. What happened? What was the vibe like? What were people trying to get across uh, what will the legacy be of this thing and how does the media sort of feed into it and what its role is in, in why people are so upset and, and seemingly uh, so disillusioned right now, right? So uh, thought no one better to ask than uh, Glenn McGregor, who had eyes on all of it, was right there in the middle of it, trying to uh, to get the story out and tell people what was going on. So really happy that he made some time for us today. How are you doing, Glenn? I'm very well, thanks, Matt. How are you? Um, I'm pretty good and appreciate you making a little time and Man, I know you've been a busy guy. Are things starting to calm down for you at all, or what's happening over there? Yeah, I may get a day off tomorrow. So, <laughs> and that's the first one since the convoy started making its way to Ottawa. I don't know how many days ago that was. What are we, a day? I don't know, sometime in mid-January? Yeah. Late January, sometime, yeah. So we were, you know, we were interested in right away, you know, because we knew it was headed here. And then, so we were filing on it every day. And then when it got here, of course, we were filing on it constantly. We had reporters out doing live hits on the streets. And uh, it was a lot of coverage. Yeah, no <laughs> Sometimes two or three stories a night. And, and, when you've uh, been live yeah, tweeting so. the uh, the bail hearings here lately, uh, it doesn't seem yeah. to be any rest for the wicked. So uh, This is a story, Matt's going to go on for a long time, I mean, especially for people in Ottawa, because you, you know, we've already started to see the beginning of this jurisprudence stuff happening uh, as these cases uh, now enter the judicial system and work their way through. Uh, there's going to be yeah, appeals of bail decisions. There's going to be, and then there's going to be pre-trials, <clears throat> which you can't cover and report on because right. they're covered by publication bans, but that'll be happening. And then there's this other component of it that is the civil action, which Paul Champ, local lawyer, has brought uh, initially on behalf of a 21-year-old woman who lived downtown. Mm-hmm. Uh, and is ex- he's ex- trying to expand the class of people who would be included in a potential class action. And he's and he's filed the lawsuit, but it's not yet a class action lawsuit. It has to be certified as a class. Okay. And he's trying to get uh, uh, all the residents 
in the downtown core as well as businesses and people who work for the businesses. And so he's added some representative plaintiffs of each of those groups. So he's going to add that to the class. And that's going to go on for a long time. And civil cases take a, a while, especially ones this complicated. But he seems very committed to it. So you're going to have that sort of two streams, you know, the, the official uh, uh, criminal justice stream, and then you're going to have the civil litigation going on uh, on the side. So it's, it's a story that's been going on for a long time. And then, of course, you're going to have kind of like all the stuff that's happening in Ottawa, at City Council, and the review of the police performance and all that. So this is the protests are over. Uh, but the story is not. Yeah, and uh, I think there's a, a few different arms to the story here I'd like to, to ask you about. And before we do, though, uh, we like to start somewhere a little bit lighter. And uh, we saw on your Twitter the other day uh, a kind of a comical mix-up you were running into over at the Royal Oak. And um, we like to talk a little beer here on the show every now and then. Are you much of a craft beer guy? Are you an import guy? If you're reaching for something, what are you looking for? I am an import guy. I mean, I'm mostly a red wine drinker. I okay. love the Cote de Rhone's from, from southern France. Um but when I do drink beer, yeah. uh, not to, to paraphrase Dos Equis, <laughs> uh, I, I, I like uh, I like my sort of more Germanic uh, pilsners and things like that. And when I go to the Royal Oak, I usually uh, I get Josh, my bartender there, to serve me up a Heineken. He always has it waiting for me by the time I got my coat off. Nice. Okay. See, that's one of my favorite spots in Ottawa. I know there's a few of them, right? But and I, I haven't been to any of them in in two years. I just haven't been been one of those people who's been back out yet. So I'm missing yeah, some of those bars. Really, it, it, it's awful to see. I mean, uh, you know, I've been lucky because I've been working throughout the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a lot of people in Ottawa have, uh, because we can work from home. Sure. Um, but people who work in, in the service sector and in the uh, hospitality industry, uh, they have been devastated by this. Yeah. So, you know, I always try and really, really up the tips <laughs> whenever I can <laughs> when, sure. I, when I go out. Because, you know, I mean, I think those people are just, you know, you get to know staff and bars and, I mean, the place I used to go uh, was my regular local. It was a Barley Mo. Oh, nice, yeah. Um, but then, you know, when they finally reopened after the pandemic, all the staff I knew who had left, and it just kind of wasn't the same. Yeah. So, like, it's 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 rough to see uh, the effects on on in, in that business too. Uh, I I want to I guess start a little bit vague here and ask you what the hell just happened? Like, what did we see roll into Ottawa? There was a number of different groups. They seemed to all have their own ideas um they everybody seemed mad at the media there was grievances there was we saw you know far right symbols we saw some people who were just there to protest more peacefully it seemed a city disturbed like what is your takeaway from this what did we just witness it it was not a homogeneous group by any means and and part of that is because i think the purpose uh if there was one uh, or the purposes uh, were, were many and changed. And I mean, when it began, we go back to the original idea that it was a protest against kind of a fairly narrow policy that is against uh, uh, the vaccination requirement for truckers who cross the Canada-U.S. border. Right. And, and people kind of make the mistake of, of saying that this was something that was imposed on the truckers in mid-January. And, and what, I don't be technical about it, but what really happened was since the beginning of the pandemic, essential workers, including truck drivers, were exempt from all border rules. And then in mid-January uh, is when the, the change kicked in where the uh, truckers lost their exemption. Right. So therefore, they would be covered by the same border rules that anybody else crossing the border would be. So it wasn't like a special piece of legislation that was crafted targeting truckers. It was it was simply removing the exemption uh, from them to have, uh, to, to have a vaccination. And of course... A week after Canada's kicked in, uh, the U.S. U.S. put their, that's when the U.S. policy took effect. And this was not a surprise. Like the, the industry, the trucking industry knew about this, I think as early as November mm-hmm. was when they were told this was the, the exemption was going to expire or be rescinded for truckers. So uh, you had a vast majority of people who work in trucking in order to keep their livelihood going. They were vaccinated. Uh, and you know, there's figures up, up of around 90%, I think, is the figure that get kicked around, 85 to 90%. Uh, people who uh, drive trucks are vaccinated, so it's maybe a little higher than the Canadian population. Uh, and um, because, you know, most Canadian, most people who work in Canada don't necessarily need to cross the border right. to do their jobs, but obviously people who are driving trucks absolutely, absolutely do. Mm-hmm. So even if Canada hadn't put in the, the policy, they would have captured the Canadian truckers because they couldn't enter the United States. So we can only go one way. 
Right. And uh, so, but but then, so digress. But to go back to your your question, yeah. So that was kind of the original impetus of it, and then it kind of mushroomed from there. And 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 we saw a lot of people who came to Ottawa were just unhappy with uh, COVID mandates in general. They didn't like lockdowns. They didn't like having to wear masks. They didn't like having to show as you had to in Ontario or still do for now, um, have to show your vaccination records when you go into a bar or a restaurant. They were just fed up. Uh, and, and that was, I think, maybe the greatest majority of the people who showed up in, here in Ottawa uh, were, were kind of that constituency. But then there's other ones too. Like the, the one thing that struck me, there's there's a lot of like people who were uh, protesting the vaccine mandates for health reasons. And it seemed to be kind of like maybe more women than men, uh, younger women too, uh, people who were like, uh, you know, concerned about their, some of them saying, well, we're being forced to put poison in our body. Uh, so there was that, and those are people who would not necessarily align with this other constituency in this group. And that was uh, people who just didn't like the government in general and Justin Trudeau in particular, and they were kind of the loudest, right? They got a lot of attention. So there was a lot of that thing too, you know? And um, so it was, it was really kind of just a kind of a, an amalgam. I mean, we've seen this in other protests before that they kind of start off as one thing and then sort of morph into something larger. I remember the Occupy Wall Street protests. Nobody can figure out what the, what the message, central right. message was. <laughs> and, and it's also complicated because, the organizational structure was unclear. Like there was clearly people who were organizing the, the original Freedom Convoy 2022, as they called it, uh, who ran the GoFundMe. But there were other leaders and who may have had more influence too. You know, so there was the Tamara Leach, who was the person of the kind of uh, most visible face of it early on, and then Pat King. Uh, and both of them uh, at this moment are both still in jail here in Ottawa uh, on mischief and other charges. But it was it was hard to tell kind of who who was calling the shots and they weren't really, they didn't really kind of articulate like who the, what the command structure was. And also their message got what was kind of blurry too, because they had this basically sort of distilled it down to, well, we want to get rid of all mandates and that's why we're protesting the federal government. But of course we know many of the mandates that they're complaining about were imposed by respective provincial governments. So it, it was a mix. Let's put it that way. Yeah. It, it feels like in that regard, you know, it, it was easy to kind of point and go, you should know better. You should be at the, you know, at Queens park here or at whatever yeah. provincial things across the country. But this is where the scene was, right? This is where you could feel like other people maybe were not quite on the same page as you, but were maybe of like mind to you and, and, you know, create this spectacle, even if it did seem a little illogical that you were, as you said, protesting these provincial mandates at the, at Parliament Hill. Yeah. Well, one of the things that really struck me about the protests, like, you know, especially in the first couple of days in the first weekend, the first Saturday, which is uh, technically the, the beginning of it, I think it was the, the 28th, 29th, January. Yeah. Um, and that was the biggest crowd. Uh, police estimated, estimated as many as 18,000 people were there. Of course, far fewer than the 500,000 yes. protest organizers had <laughs> predicted. Uh, and some of the international media reported that credulously that, that it was half a million people here in right. Ottawa, which of course is, was preposterous because anybody who's seen a Canada Day crowd knows this wasn't like a Canada Day crowd. But the, the thing that struck me about the people who were there, especially on that first Saturday, is how much fun they were having. This was a party, and it was, I think, for a lot of them, exhilarating. And and I suspect the reason why, might have been for some of them anyway, that they may have been ostracized by friends uh, in their respective communities, mm -hmm. maybe even family members, uh, because they had views that were not, um, uh, maybe a little bit outside the, the mainstream opinion about uh, the pandemic in general. And I mean, I know people like that. Sure. Like, I, I have friends like that um, who who uh, have have lost friends, yeah, and and have the relationships damaged because of their resistance to vaccination. And I think then all of a sudden you had they were all kind of all together here in a party atmosphere. It was like a Buffalo Bills tailgate party. Right. That's what it kept reminding me of. <laughs> uh, I, I go to a Bills game every year with some of my buddies. I think we go tailgate at the Ralph Wilson Stadium, and it was exactly the scene that you were seeing, the things you were seeing, 
the sounds you were hearing and the things you were smelling, you know, like sure. uh, fire pits and people barbecuing. We're just missing the tables, uh, right? Music. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. People jumping off, <laughs> off bands, falling through tables and, and, and trading up for a Kiko Alonso jersey. Yeah. Uh, so it's an arcane reference. If you follow Deadspin, you might get it. But, but, but um, it, it felt it had that same feeling. Like people were just really enjoying themselves. And I think it was suddenly because they were surrounded by people who were of like mind. Right. And that must've been really fun for a lot of people who have had a difficult couple of years and, and, and particularly difficult because they may have felt um, shunned by some of their uh, other people. Even just in general, right? Like we've all been doing less than we have before, right? In terms of going out and being in crowds and concerts and things like that, it would be, regardless of the cause that brought you there, exciting to kind of be back in these environments and, and things like that. So maybe that was a pull for some people who maybe wouldn't have gone uh, otherwise. I, I do wonder like what the, what you think happened on the Monday morning after that first weekend, because it became pretty clear that a lot of them were not leaving. Uh, at that point, the police were pretty slow to respond. They had their reason mm-hmm. saying at that point they weren't yet prepared or were understaffed. They were going to need some help. Um, but this drag on for a long time and and there was a lot of finger pointing going on between the city and the police and the feds and the provincial people like who's supposed to take care of this. What do you think happened in the time after that first weekend where it became clear, okay, this they mean it, they're not moving, they're staying, and the time that they actually went in and, and cleared this out? Yeah, I mean, you could do an entire podcast about the preparation or lack of preparation the city of Ottawa police uh, made and I mean, I think it comes down to they just didn't they didn't anticipate this. I mean, Ottawa sees protests all the time. Mm-hmm. Usually, it's a one day wonder. Everybody gets bored and goes home. And the vast majority of people who showed up on that first Saturday, I think, did go home. Yes. Um, but the problem is for police that you had a much smaller group uh, who were committed to staying for uh, the long haul, to excuse the expression, but <laughs> also had physically encamped with their trucks. I mean. You know, we can Monday morning quarterback this pretty easily and say, well, obviously you should not have allowed all the trucks sure. to come down stand and, and you should not have been helping them park safely on Wellington Street. And other cities had saw seen the Ottawa example and responded appropriately. I mean, when they tried to go to Toronto, um, it was the weekend following in Quebec City, um, they were ready because they'd seen what had gone wrong in Ottawa and they blockaded the National Assembly and they blockaded the legislature at Queen's Park. So they had a, a, a much better experience of it there. And they didn't have to deal with the possibility of having to go in and remove people from trucks and then try and have to figure out how you can get the trucks out of there because yeah. they were better prepared. I mean, you know, is that a mistake the police made? Uh, obviously, in retrospect, it is. Um, can we be blamed for it? Uh, you know, people will have opinions about that. It's hard, I, right? Because you know, at it's first, it's a protest, right? You ha- yeah, and you have yeah. the right to do that. And it wasn't yet an occupation. So it's hard in hindsight right. to... Yeah, yeah. I mean that'll, that's going to play out at city council and on the police services board. You know, I want to see, you know, see how that. I mean, it's obviously it's going to cost the police chief his job. So yes, for sure. I mean, there's obviously consequences for that decision for him. Yeah, uh, and, and I think there's going to be consequences for the police in general because you know things I hear from people is just how uh, their confidence is so supremely eroded in the police and the ability of the police in the city to keep them safe, especially people living in the downtown. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether that's an accurate impression you know that's lots, lots, a lot of people feel that way although i think some people may have changed their minds when they saw the police response this past weekend and i mean that was not just the Ottawa police uh, but they let it and uh it was backed up by rcmp and police forces from all over the province and the state of quebec uh so but i think people might have been might have had if their confidence was shaken in the police some of them may have been partially restored by that response. What did you make of the response? Because I got to be honest with you, I was surprised, obviously in the most pleasant way possible, that it went the way it did. Um, When you have people who are as entrenched as these guys were, and a lot of them saying, you know, now they hadn't been confronted yet, but a lot of them saying, we're not leaving. Um, When it gets tense like that, and you start to see the shields on them on the second day, like it's not hard for one spark to turn into a problem and this by all accounts went about as smoothly as anybody could have hoped for were you surprised by that i was uh and, and i think you have to give credit for whoever in, in policing was planning it because they did if you, if you kind of go back and look at it 
strategically, it would the way did, the way they did it was really smart. First of all, they they had to wait until they had the numbers. Yeah. So there was this back and forth negotiation with between the three levels of government to ensure they had enough just an, an, enough police on hand because police don't like to use force unless they have a massive numerical advantage. Sure. Uh, and whether that's breaking up a bar fight or an operation like this, they want to have they want to be there in big numbers. They want to present a intimidating presence that will cause people to not resist or to leave. Yeah. So the, the, the thing that was strategically at least smart about it, I think is they decided to take the corner of Rideau and Sussex or, Rito and Wel- or Sussex and Wellington first. And that was that kind of encampment. There it was sort of a party zone. They had a DJ there at nights. My colleague Mackenzie Gregg used to, was, had a little riff on Twitter where he was blogging about it being Ottawa's hottest nightclub, yes. you know, kind of ripping off Stefan from <laughs> SNL. And, uh, and he would go there every night on his way home and he'd, he'd kind of see the chart what was going on. But that was the one they took first. And there was some clashes. Like when we saw the police marching out from that tunnel next to the Western Hotel, uh, with the armored car behind them, rows of Ottawa police, and I believe there was there was mounted police there too. And they they made their objective obviously was to take back that intersection. And then the Sûreté de Quebec came in and surrounded the trucks while police went in and uh, got people out of the trucks. We saw some, you know, in one case our cameras caught a, a pretty dramatic breach entry of a Winnebago out in front of the chapters on Sussex Street. You know, they got surrendered and it was fine. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, there was not a lot of people who got badly hurt. I mean, there was a lot of attention paid to the woman who got trampled, uh, by the horses. Right. Uh, and those horses were not Ottawa police horses. I think they were from Toronto, uh, because we don't have mounted, a mounted unit here in Ottawa. Uh, and that was, I mean, the police explanation of that was that things were getting rowdy sort of on the front line between the police and the protesters. And they brought the horses into uh, basically put a barrier between them sure. and somebody, somebody got trampled and then, you know, that's, uh, and she, I mean, she was, sounds like she was injured and hospitalized and that's, uh, unfortunate. Um, and there was, you know, other reports of like, even on the next day when they decided to advance on the Wellington in front of Parliament Hill, there was, you know, people, there's some pepper spray was used. Uh, I didn't see it. I was up there actually that day, like right on the, uh, in front of the old U.S. Embassy, directly across Parliament, from Parliament Hill, as that line of police was advancing into the to the crowd, and that is uh, a that's a frightening thing to look at. Sure. Uh, and, and I was up there because I just, I just want to make sure we had extra video and extra eyes on it to see what happened. But they would the police would kind of stand there in a row, and then they all once say move back, and they'd advance a few meters at a time, and people would kind of most people did move back. And when you look at them, uh, they had long wooden clubs in their hands, like as um, batons. Mm-hmm. And then behind them was, again, the Surete, who appeared to be more heavily armed with um, these non-lethal uh, weapons that would fire, I think, kind of like maybe beanbags or something. Okay. And there was reports of some, some people being hit by those. And there was some pepper spray used. They didn't have to tear gas anybody. And we know they didn't tear gas anyone because the police, when they used tear gas, they put on the, their own face masks right. uh, to protect themselves. And so that, that didn't happen. Uh, so and the other thing about it was if you compare to other protests we've seen with police action involved, think back to the G20 in Toronto where uh, all those tools plus tear gas was used and plus they used the technique of kettling, which is basically police closing in from all yeah. sides. When they went to take back Wellington, the police advanced from the east from that position in front of the Shadow Laurier they'd taken. And they moved up Wellington in front of the Parliament buildings. And at the other end of the street at O'Connor, uh, in front of the uh, Sir John A. Macdonald building, SGEM, they had another line of police there, and they had the mounted police there uh, uh, behind them. And so what they were doing is, rather than kettling people, they were giving them the option to leave because they left O'Connor completely open to leave to the south. And right. a lot of people did. Yep. A lot of them got out of Dodge. Uh, because it is, it's a terrifying sight. And I, and, uh, I, you know, I, I was up there for about an hour and I was very careful to stay. Uh, you know, I wanted to be close enough that I could record video, but I also didn't want to get pepper sprayed accidentally sure. or hit by a rubber bullet. And if I had been, that would be my own fault. Sure. Because yep. this yeah. is, there was, this is not like the police suddenly attacked, uh, innocent protesters. They warned everybody this was coming. 
They so, handed out pamphlets. Uh, like, they handed out pamphlets. Yeah, that morning, hey, we're coming. Right? Like, 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 it was it was not a surprise yeah. that there was going to be a major police action, right? So, uh, I, look, and you know, we see videos uh, surfacing of people saying, "Was well, police brutality?" Uh, these videos of people being needed in the back. I, I think we have to scrutinize those really carefully uh, because uh, the use of force is should be should only be used in when it's necessary, and yeah. it's important that journalists uh, make sure, even in this extreme situation, that police are applying it properly. The stuff I've seen so far, uh, and there's the videos going around of a guy being kind of kneed in the back repeatedly, and some of the protest supporters are likening this to, you know, um, well, this is it's, it's police brutality and it's beating up an old man. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I haven't seen the whole thing in context, so I, I don't know. And, and But there's a channel for complaints over that, and those should be pursued, I think, um, because... I think often, like in those situations, police can lose their tool too. Like it's, you know, it's scary for us journalists on the street. It's scary for protesters. I think the police get freaked out too. Right? Oh, I'm I mean, sure. That's, this, this is a, you know, this, this doesn't happen often for them. Right. You know, uh, for most police, like it's not something that they do every day. So, anyway, we'll we'll see. I think it'll shake out. You know, as we as, as some of these complaints are heard, we'll get a sense of whether or not they were valid or not, uh, and that's a really important process. And um, but if you kind of look at sort of the total numbers. Um, yeah, there are a lot of arrests, but not that many, I mean, somewhere between 100 and 200, I think, arrests yeah, over yeah. the two days. So yeah, sure. A lot of arrests and, and, and how many charge, you know, a fewer the number of those would be charged. And then the reported injuries. Yes, there was some injuries, but none of them seemed really, really serious and nobody died. Right. right? And that's, that's the thing I think. And I, I think in part because of that strategy of, we're not going to kettle you. We're going to let you get out of here. The whole just thing, go. right? Just was, yeah. run down O'Connor and get the hell out of the room. Leave the back door open, turn and go. Exactly. We're not trying to arrest everyone. We just want you to get the hell out of here. Right. So. Yeah, exactly. And that was, that was the goal. And, the, and it, and it worked. So, uh, and then because they were maintaining the perimeter around the city, uh, still up in some places that, uh, you've, you've kept sort of the ingress of protesters from coming back. It's going to be interesting to see in the next couple of days, like how long that lasts, yeah. uh, whether police maintain that, whether or not they are, they are worried about the protesters and the trucks coming back because we know of these encampments mm-hmm. outside the city. And there's one, I think, around Van Cleek Hill. We had our cameras on one near Arm Prior yesterday. And then I understand there's one also to the south of the city. So, but whether those people actually come back to try and get downtown, we, we don't know. And we'll be interested to see the police response. And then, of course, that all kind of plays into the ongoing debate at the federal level about invoking the emergencies measures, uh, the emergencies act, whether or not that was required in this circumstance and whether it is still required going forward. Do, do, do police still need those additional powers? Uh, that's you know literally a, a matter of live debate uh, that's going on uh, in politics. So, um, yeah, lots of different threads. On it. Yeah. I want to ask you about the, the media and the PR side of this thing, if you could call it that, I, you know, I've had some people say to me that the whole idea of the, you know, you mentioned a few minutes ago that it, it seemed like a lot of fun on the first weekend, and then we saw bouncy castles rolling in and saunas mm-hmm. and hot tubs and stuff like that. Is that yeah. a is that a, a PR move by the organizers? Look, look how peaceful we are. We are here just having a good time. Is it a legitimate? You know, no, we're not leaving, so we're going to set up kind of a carnival thing. What did you make of that element? Yeah. Well, I think I mean that it was those, those images of that happening definitely were used by the protesters to present themselves as like a family friendly event. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that it was, and it was, a, that it was peaceful and also to signal that they are not leaving. But I think they did those, I mean, they did those because, you know, you had to feed people, uh, you had to amuse the kids. Uh, if you're, if you're going to stay here for any length of time, yeah. you had to do those things. And there's sort of the natural thing. And they were kind of turning it into, like a little, I don't know, a Woodstock, a Burning Man, you know, it was kind of like a, fest- a festival at one point. So, I mean, those were the images that people really responded to, right? Because like, what? There's a hot tub. Well, that's so absurd. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Prime Minister's office. Like, okay. well, you know what? Like I say, they were like, a lot of these folks were having a good time. Yeah. And, uh, you know, have a few beers, get in the hot tub and talk to people about things that, you know, the viewpoints that you, that you share that you haven't maybe been able to express back home. Well, someone had posted a video there of someone in the hot tub yelling, hold the line. And I'm just, it, it was sort of insulting like this. You don't look like you're working that hard, like a military officer here. Like, yeah. It looks yeah. pretty absurd, but what is it? You kind of set off the top as you were walking through, 
you know, or, or the, the different elements that were there and for the different reasons that were there. What did you get as you were trying to talk to people on the street? What percentage of them were willing to talk to you? What percentage of them? I saw a guy named Terrence who didn't seem to be a big fan of your network or the job you were doing. You know you guys are pieces of shit, right? They're going to edit that. No, they can, they can say I said it. My name's Terrence. You're a piece of shit. Yeah, you're a piece of shit too if you're with them. I am. Yeah. You're a piece of fucking What's your last name, Terrence? I don't need to What's your last name? McGregor. Yeah? Why don't you fucking report the fucking truth for what? We do every day. No, you don't. How do you know? It's all fucking lies. Do you watch? I watch it, yeah. You watch my newscast and say it's all, what's, what's wrong? Give me one, tell me, give me five facts you think are wrong on our newscast. You're with CTV? Yes. Yeah? Go look at all the fake reporters that fucking protesters are violent. Show me one video of protesters being violent. Show me one. I didn't say, no one said protesters are violent. I watch, I see the, the fucking po- thing this morning. I, I've, I've done, I've done one of our shit. reports. You're guilty by association. Show me one video no, 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 of any protester being violent. I didn't say protesters were violent. I never said that on the air. Well, CTV did. No they, didn't. no, they didn't. You yeah, misinterpreted. Did. No. You did not understand the, the television report the in English, sir. What kind of... Were people willing to talk to the media? Did they want to get their message out? Or was it better for them to hold you as the villain? What vibe were you getting there? Yeah. I, I, like, you know, early on, like I said, the first day, we were going around talking to people. And um, some of them would talk to us. Uh, and because, like I said, that was a, a different group than uh, and a different tone to that group than the people who were left in the last a couple of you know, the last say, uh, week and a half. Um, yes, yeah, so some folks were going to talk to us. I mean, I talked to guys from um, some South Asian guys who were from, I think, um, somewhere in the GTA who were really upset about their group being portrayed as racist right. because people had seen like a swastikas and Confederate flags and things like that. And they really wanted to express that and we put them on the air. I mean, that's, that's our job is we want to talk to people and we want to understand their reasons for coming. Um, and, and we try to do that as best we can. As the protests continued, I think a lot of them got frustrated that they weren't seeing reflected in the reporting what they felt the experience was like. And then, uh, and then it also played into, uh, you know, a lot of folks uh, who maybe have these viewpoints are getting their information from, uh, how should I say, independent yeah. alternative media that may, may be presenting a different picture. And, they, and then it becomes kind of echo chamber. And then one of the messages in that uh, sphere is that uh, the media is the enemy of the people. Uh, it's fake news. We're liars. We're, and the thing I heard thrown at us so often is that we're on the payroll of, of the federal government. In, 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 in Canada, at least, the impetus for that was this media fund that the federal government set up yeah. um, a while ago to help um, mostly print and online publications, right? So my employer doesn't take money from that media fund. We don't, we're, not, we're not eligible. Right. Uh, as broadcasters aren't, aren't eligible. So, um, and we are not funded by the federal government in the same way the CBC is. And so people at the CBC have gotten a lot worse, even though they're all, uh, what I know, the CBC Bureau is a really good reporter. Um, so... Uh, that became, you know, so, so that was the message that they were throwing at us uh, all the time. And a lot of people, you know, we, even on the first day, we go up and say, hey, can we chat with you? And then who are you with? And you say, okay, well, I, don't, I think you're fake media. And they walk away. And, and so we're getting the hostility right from the beginning. But we were still able to report on what was going on uh, and, and, and and talk to folks who were willing to, to share their viewpoint about the issues, about the mandates, about why the protests were here, all those things. And then it kind of, every day, got a little, a little bulk. It obviously stands to reason, especially on places like Twitter, where I spend far too much time, the more sensational something is, the more attention it gets. And so we did get a pile of videos, and I believe one of them was yours with uh, MSNBC, of people kind of piling around and just yelling to the point where you couldn't even do your hit, right? And sometimes right. yelling... Nothing, just making loud noise or chanting freedom yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Is these protests uh, being harassed, screamed at, as you can hear? Uh, this is the one thing, uh, Yasmin, that unites these groups that have been protesting here in Ottawa for the last three weeks is the way they feel about the media. And they are venting it uh, loudly and uh, often, as you can tell. So uh, we are, apologize, we're not kind of the kinder, gentler Canada you may be used to see. 
You're a real true hero, bud. True What's hero. Your fucking sleazebags. Get a real fucking job. Lost, I've lost the IV. Fucking sack the goddamn for? shit. Who pays your checks? We lost. Guys, the media is the virus. You guys disgusting. Truth was that you're free. Thanks, Yasmin. Appreciate it. You know, how prominent was that by the end? Is that, did, is that a fair representation at that point that that had become the majority or is that just what? It was, it was, it was every night. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that was not, I mean, that one where I was doing a hit for MSNBC uh, and that's the one that's kind of got a lot of traction mm-hmm. on Twitter. Uh, that was, that was one of the, well, that's probably the worst uh, in terms of the intensity and the number of people. And what had happened there was, it was sort of like as, there's, there's sort of we kind of changed the way we reported on this. Like when we sent people into the field, as we call it, we tried to keep a lower profile when we were sending camera crews out. Uh, and, and when you have a, uh, a television camera on your shoulder, and sometimes with lights and sound gear, you attract a lot of attention. You yeah, are you're instantly recognizable as a television broadcaster. So that pro- sometimes provokes a reaction. So we we kind of as as the protest went on, we kind of developed some strategies to kind of lower our profile a little bit. Um, but we still had to go out at the end of the night and do something called an on-cam, so or a sign-off, a stand-up. Uh, uh, so, you know, it's basically at the end of my edited report, I say I do a throwback to the anchor and I say something pithy about what's happening tonight, and then it's well. So we have, we want to go out in the street and record those, and that's just a standard television practice. It's mm-hmm. something you do in every story, and, and uh, those those were became much harder as as the protests continued because soon as because we're doing it at night and so you have to have to turn on a light and then people just kind of flock and um some of them went like relatively smoothly sometimes we had people who would just kind of stand by and watch and grumble some stuff and they'd all bring out take out their phones to record us recording our bit yeah which is struck me as off because well, you just watch it on the news. <laughs> but it was like, they, they seemed to be thinking that they were going to catch us doing something. Right. And they, they, they would always yell, tell the truth. Even the ones who were being more polite mm-hmm. would say, try, you know, didn't try and interrupt. But then there was like, you know, active attempts to interfere with it. Uh, you know, people trying to get in front of the cameras, um, yelling obscenities at us. Uh, Saw spitting going on. Yeah. Sick. So, so the, the one, the one that got all the attention, the MSNBC one was I'd gone out there to do it. And uh, I mean, it's not often we do hits on American networks, but we sometimes do one. On, they they one suddenly Canadian had a, a big interest in us over the last yeah, couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so I went out there at the appointed time and the camera crew was set up and ready to go. I'm like, put my, earpiece in something called IFB, which basically means you, you're, you're, you're hearing the host at the other end of the digital connection. But then we had a huge problem, technical problem with the routing of it. So I had to stand out there for uh, over I think it was like 25 minutes oh boy. waiting and waiting and waiting. And as I was doing this, more and more people came and then it became a pretty big group. Uh, you know, maybe, I don't know, 18, two dozen people. And they were all right around us. Um, one guy spit sort of in the direction of our, uh, our camera tech, um, Evan Solomon was out there. He had been doing a hit earlier, so he was trying to kind of talk to people and kind of distract them and kind of let them say their piece away from the camera so I could do my hit. Mm-hmm. I was, I'm grateful for him for trying that. And then, uh, but but because of these technical problems, we were just out there so long. And then when I finally connected in to the uh, to the anchor in New York, then um, they just went crazy and started yelling and screaming and jumping around behind me and shouting obscenities and it was the weirdest. I thought I'd actually lost my audio connection in my ear because it was dead silence after I kind of spoke for, you know, 60 seconds or so waiting for the next question or prompt from the anchor. And I, and, and then it was just, I think they they didn't know what to do because they were, people were like yelling profanity into it was clearly audible. Right. And so they just basically shut it down and said, okay, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> and that was it. And then we kind of had to like head back to our bureau. So th- th- that was, uh, to answer your question, but was, was that representative? That was a more extreme example. No question, but it was entirely, uh, we, we, every time we sent a camera out, we had some kind of negative interaction with people. Uh, I mean, not every time, but maybe about 20, 26 nights or whatever it was um uh you know i I would say you know 
there was two or three nights I remember where we actually went out there. Nobody bothered us, and we came back, and they were like, "Wow, that was really, that was easy," <laughs> you know. So, I mean, we had to like hire, and oh, this is not a secret anymore, but we had to hire private security to, to go out with our crews. I was and just going to ask you what, like, what's that like? Yeah. Maybe this is a stupid question, but is it intimidating? Like, is it? How do you feel trying to do your job at that point, which is just report what you're seeing, and there's a crowd of people around you, and again, that with one spark, things can turn fast. Yeah. Like, what's that like? Yeah, like so. Just to be clear, like there was no physical violence uh there was there was one came close a guy came charging towards one of my colleagues who was standing uh, looking into the camera to do an on cam and uh, fortunately one of our other camera techs who was there kind of cut this guy off right and, and tried to take him get him to cool down um but uh, so nobody no, like nobody was physically uh, injured in that um but the people who are most vulnerable I mean, the reporter is a little bit because he or she is looking into cam- like into the camera, trying to focus what they're going to say, uh, not and do it quickly and not screw it up so you don't have to do a second take. Yeah. Right? You want to do it, you know, you want to get it done and get out of there. Um, but the, the people who are most vulnerable are the the photographers, the people who are looking through the lens of the television camera because they have no spatial awareness. They're just all they see is what they're in right in front of them through the camera viewfinder. Mm-hmm. They don't know what's happening behind them. Uh, those are the folks that we're kind of most worried about. Um, just because they're in that, that vulnerable position. So, um, you know, we had these private security guys who come with us, and, I, and at other networks, I think, actually had more than we did. Um, but uh, everybody was using it because you just wanted to make sure that you had somebody there you could rely on to uh, to look for somebody who might be sure. more aggressive towards your, your crew. Let me ask you something that is probably completely unfair and maybe needs to be determined yeah. above your pay grade, but uh, but we'll find out. How do we, as far as the, the coverage of this, and a lot of people who came to this thing, as you said, are getting their their information from some fairly unreliable places or uh, alternative news, I guess we're calling it. I struggle to call it news, but whatever. Mm-hmm. How do we reach them? Because it seems like we're getting to a point where no matter how up the middle any network calls something, the further away you get from it, it it looks far in the other direction. You know what I'm saying? Like if I, if I have far right politics and I keep getting further and further to the right, that looks like maybe that news is moving further and further to the left instead. And it's really hard. Like what do we... How do we get people to kind of come back and, and not change their political views necessarily, but just can we, how do we get back to a place where journalism gives you the facts and then we all go back and discuss them? Sure, we all put our own spin on it, but at least we start in the same place of absorbing the same information. Yeah, well, if I had the answer to that. I mean, <laughs> we've heard a lot of people talking about media literacy. Like, okay teach a class in high school how to watch television right. and just, you know, I, I don't think that's going to do it. I mean, the example I always fight, uh, often cite is when I started working in journalism in Ottawa, there was a guy, and this is like, you know, well pre-internet, there was a guy named Harold Funk and he would uh, go around to park cars in downtown Ottawa and stick under their windshield wipers a thing that he had mimeographed. You remember mimeographs? Wow. Like when you're, you, you're probably too young, but, <laughs> but in high school, they used to handle the math test. It was kind of printed in this purple ink. It was from a mimeo, it was like a cheap version of a photocopier. Right? And so he'd stick these things under the, wind, under the windshield wipers, and they were like crazy conspiracy theories. And, and I'm sure if Harold uh, were still with us, uh, which he's not, he would be, he'd have a website. And, 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 he, and if he was smart, he would have hired a really good web designer, and it would look not that different from a legitimate news source. Right. And I think that's really, the, there's kind of a flatness to the internet that um, you can look at, uh, at a news site, a, a, a conventional news organization website, Global Mail, Post Media, whatever, and and you can then you can also see something that is like completely out there. And they, for, if you're not particularly sophisticated in your understanding of this, they look kind of like the same. Mm-hmm. So how so it's not something that's mimeographed and stuck on your on your windshield. It's something that looks like oh well, maybe I have to weigh these two sources and consider them. Well, this you know uh, the Globe and Mail says this, but uh, you know HeraldFunk.com says something else. Right. How do you how, and people a lot of people just don't understand can't understand it. So 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's an internet problem. The internet's wonderful. Well, YouTube's the exact same thing, right? If you got the time and yeah. the resources, you can build yourself yeah. a little professional-looking studio right in your basement, light it nicely, and yeah. it doesn't look that different from what you're seeing on TV. Yeah, so I, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Like, I, I, uh, I, I, I'm not sure there is one because psychologists talk about something called confirmation bias, and that once you, you you can find sources of information that confirm your own beliefs, you're more likely to consider them to be credible sources yes. and information that contradicts what you already believe. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, that's a huge, uh, huge problem. And, and particularly came to the fore in the pandemic and particularly uh, with over vaccination because people were cherry picking information that they thought um, confirmed, uh, confirmed their own opinions and promoting it, you know, especially like, even like in, the, in medical science, like, you know, on any issue, any new drug, any new illness, um, there's hundreds and hundreds of papers, preprints that are published and that are often contradictory. Yep. And so if you are looking only for the contradictory piece of information, you can find that and say, well, look at, oh, this study of you know, 25 uh, people in Denmark showed uh, folks are dropping dead from vaccination, you know, anyway. And then, and you say, well, what about that? And, and so like, it's, it's hard to kind of know what to do about that. I, I just, I'm at a loss. I, I really don't know. I really don't know. Um, I can tell you as a Toronto Maple Leaf fan in Ottawa, <laughs> I, I, I find the Sens fans that come across my Twitter feed to be objectionable, and I find the Leaf fans that come across my feed to be wonderful people. So, it, it, as you say, it, it backs up your own biases, right? It's, right, exactly. So, yeah. uh, what's but that, that's something that doesn't matter. Right. No, exactly. <laughs> may, may, may matter intently to you. But, <laughs> you know, in the greater yeah, no, we, have, we have to figure this out. Somewhat like, less important, is, but yeah. These are like literally matters of life and death, right? I mean, if you have large numbers of people, as we do in this country, who have chosen to subscribe to information uh, that isn't accurate about public health measures, that's that's a public health problem, right? Too. Like it's not it's not it's not a media issue. It's 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 a greater concern, and then, and this also affects the way governments develop, formulate policy, uh, and the way we elect governments. Yes, too. You know, I mean, I mean, my takeaways from this protest was there was it was it was basically fueled on delusion at a lot of levels. Like there was there was. The massive misunderstanding of medical science and the science of vaccination. Um, there was um, understand, misunderstanding of the way the media works. And there was misunderstanding of the way government works. Right? I mean, the protest leaders were calling uh, for the government to resign and turn over power to a coalition that their members would form in some kind of bizarro ruling junta with the governor general and the opposition right. uh, to, to scrap all the COVID mandates. And it's just like, I mean, yesterday, the governor general's office at Rideau Hall had to put out a thing on Twitter saying that there is no mechanism for the governor general to remove the prime minister from power based on receiving emails or, or an electronic petition. It's the old and forward I mean, this to this 10 is, people and Justin will step down. This is where we are, yeah. right? And some people say, well, oh, we need better education and civics. I don't I don't think that's going to help either. I mean, we have civics education. Like, right. People, people should come out of high school knowing the basics of how our democracy works. You have elections, you elect members of parliament, and they form, some of them form a government, and the government decides. And if you don't like it, decisions the government makes you can vote them out at the next election. Like that's kind of how it works. And for some, the idea that and this wasn't just like grassroots people in the protest. These are people in leadership, putatively in leadership positions who are advancing these kinds of theories, right? This Canada unity group had this, they called it this memo of understanding uh, that had um, hundreds of thousands of signatures on it that they felt they would take to Ottawa and say, okay, it's time for uh, the prime minister to resign and turn over power to, whatever this Come mechanism on. they had yeah envisioned, <laughs> right? So I mean and, and you know I think like I understand, I understand a lot of people maybe don't I, mean, I cover federal politics, so obviously I know kind of how how it works. Sure. 
I understand maybe a lot of people don't follow it that closely and were animated by this cause because they're frustrated because a lot of the vaccination stuff they don't like and they don't like the masks and all that. Um, so you can't expect them to, everybody to, to know exactly the process, but um, there's got to be kind of, in the, in the sort of the discourse, the civil discourse, there has to be a greater level of understanding. And again, I, 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 I sort of throw up my hands in the same way I do about the misinformation circulating in alternative media. Uh, I don't know what to do about it. Yeah, the, the, the problem or the thing that I took away from it a lot was it wasn't just the misunderstanding of how this works, but the certainty that they did understand, like, and the aggressiveness that, and that's where that the media and the internet and all of that starts to come back into it, right? I have found places that are telling me I'm right. I'm standing here with thousands of people who think I'm right. Why wouldn't I believe I'm right, despite the fact that I'm so off target? And, and the other part of that that I'm struggling to piece apart is how many of those people actually misunderstood and how many people, especially in the leadership, were being disingenuous about it, right? I know better than this, but I can sell this to you and get people to follow it because it stirs the pot and it gets them upsetting. And that's sure. equally as important. And, then, and, that's, and that's, that's also going to be kind of a profitable, we've seen in the United yeah. States, that can be a, a profitable mo- model that you can uh, market misinformation to people and, and they will uh, respond. You know, I saw it just, what was it, Tuesday, Ezra Levant response. put out something that comparing, there was the same news story in, on Global and on Maybe it was CTV. I can't remember now, but saying, can you believe it? They're printing the exact same story. They're not even trying. And like, I know, you know what the wire service is. I know, you know, this, but you're trying to yeah. stir everybody up, I guess. Right. Like, it's, yeah, sure. I mean, there's willful uh, stuff like that. Yeah. But uh, again, it's all, a lot of it's imported from the U S and that's, and, and, and I mean, I, I think, we, you know, we haven't talked about this in the, yeah, but I think we need to, is that part of the reason why I think, a compo- some of these people, and again, I, I can't you can't generalize the whole right. group because it's it's so um, disparate. But uh, felt emboldened by the, by the comments the prime minister had made, describing them as uh, tinfoil hats, wearing tinfoil hats, and um, basically almost ridiculing yep. them for for their views about vaccination. And I think you know I, I got the sense that he maybe regrets that, and his, his tone has changed a little bit as the protest came to an end. And I think he realizes that they, a lot of them kind of uh, adopted that as a, a um, I saw rally. people wearing, we're wearing tinfoil hats. Yeah, it was a rallying cry. Right, right. it was a rallying cry. In the same way, I mean, he called them a small fringe minority. Yeah, And I, I met a lot of people on the Hill who were like, had t-shirts printed up. In, in the same way, they kind of embraced the small fringe minority tag in the same way that, some of the uh, people involved in the, in the Make America Great movement, the Trump supporters, yeah. embraced Hillary Clinton's diss of them as being a basket of deplorables. Yes. You know? So a lot, a lot of people began identifying with that. So uh, I, I, I think that maybe, you know, that might have maybe not might have been a mistake by the Prime Minister to do that. Yeah. And, is, and they, also, they also were very reactive. The protests were very, very reactive. This is the thing we heard so often, is the fact that Media reported, uh, we showed pictures of, especially on the first day or two, of people driving around with a Confederate flag on a truck, uh, and then another person carrying uh, a flag with a swastika on it, and mm-hmm. there's another sign with a swastika on that, and they felt really, like, unfairly um, tarred with that brush, that we're saying everybody's racist. Um, but, I mean, that happens, like, you, you we have to report that right Um, i mean that's an inflammatory symbol that is incredibly offensive both those things are incredibly offensive to a great number of people and it would be negligent for us not to report that those images were were saying but a lot of them and probably because they aren't actually watching the newscast in which that's being reported on a lot of them would say oh you're making us all sound like we're all nazis and we're all racists and we weren't. We weren't saying that. We were saying that that was there was those images that presence displayed. Is here. But then the prime minister jumped on that too, yeah, yep. right? And that also, I think, kind of um, maybe poured a little fuel on the fire there, and and, and really raised the level of anger a lot of people felt they weren't they weren't um, being 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 unfairly portrayed in that way. Because I mean, I, I, you know, I don't think everybody on Parliament Hill was a racist, no. uh, uh, 
and and you know, but then you got a conspiracy theory about well, was it Antifa who was carrying the swastika around to discredit the movement? And like, okay, well, maybe I don't know. Like, we see this on all of them, right? When there's a Black Lives yeah. Matter rally and some assholes show up and smash a bunch of windows, that whole movement gets yeah. painted with that brush, right? And it it's yeah, it's sorry. rarely yeah, and, and accurate. That's, and that's something we've heard a lot too. Is like, why don't you? You know, were you reporting about this and that at the BLM rally, or which? And I was like, well, I actually covered the BLM rally, but you know, if ha- those things had happened, uh, I would have. Yes, of course, right? So, um, and I mean, they know that some of the BLM uh, rallies uh, in the United States, that yeah, there was like, I would say violence, but there was window smash. There was, I think, incidents of violence as well. Mm-hmm. And the reason they know that. Is because it was reported by the media, yep. right? We, they, they are, <laughs> the, the American journalists did their jobs and reported those things too. Yes. So, but they, but the people who are here didn't think it was done fairly. So. Uh, man, I don't think we're going to solve all the problems of the world here today, but uh, I, I'm glad you were able to untangle some of it for us. What's, uh, what's next? Do you ever know? Do you wake up in the morning knowing what you're covering or is it whatever comes across the wire that day? Sometimes you have an idea, uh, other times you don't, and that's one of the things that makes uh, journalism a wonderful job, and and um, it, it makes it worthwhile uh, having somebody screaming in your ear what a, how your soul's going to burn in hell while you're trying to do an on-camp. It's balanced off by the fact that the job has got it really interesting every day. I mean, I'm glad, like, so I, like I'm an Ottawa guy. I was born in Ottawa, mm-hmm. spent most of my life here, went to Glebe High School, went to Ottawa U, um, and... This story was like really important to me uh, because of, in part because of that. Uh, but it was it was a story. It was so multi layered because it was, you know, all three levels of government engaged. There was uh, social issues. There was issues of medical science, uh, obviously at, at the root of it. Maybe there was issues about media uh, and this fascinating dis- discussion about how far government should use. Uh, the powers it has, these extraordinary powers under the Emergencies Act, to deal with what had happened, and I don't have a view on it. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm genuinely neutral. I've heard like there's lots of people whose opinions I've heard and listened to that have different views, and I and, and I think there's a really it's a really uh, lively debate. Yeah. But that's that's what made this such an interesting story, um, and, and, and like one like I've never seen before, frankly. Like uh, you know. Stories that covered my career. I, I don't. Uh, I don't remember any anyone like this. And, um, and the, only, the only thing I can think of that has seized that seized people so much uh, was maybe nine eleven. Um, and I mean, that, of course, seized people all over the world. Yeah. Um, but it had the same effect on this city. It was like that level of um, engagement, public engagement, and discussion, like everywhere you went people were talking about it and it mattered. So that's, that's kind of the cool thing about journalism is being like being the witness to that and, and, um, and getting to, to try and communicate uh, and, and trying to understand what's happening. Well, I appreciate that you do it. I mean, on the, the Saturday that the cops were moving everybody out, we had a live, I was down visiting my parents, uh, down West of Peterborough and we had the, an iPad set up in the kitchen with the live stream on all day, literally just oh, right, like yeah. walking by and what are they doing now? What's happening? Like it, it, you couldn't take your eyes off of it. And I think part of the intrigue is that, Hey, I know that place, right? Like I recognize all these landmarks and everywhere that this is happening. I've been there before and it kind of, we've seen yeah. these kind of wild stories, but have it overlaid onto your own city was a really strange kind of thing to watch. You felt removed from it and yet there it is right in your backyard. Yeah, it was it was just surreal. Really, yeah. sometimes <laughs> there's you know there's the bar I go to, there's the coffee shop I go to yeah. in the morning, right? Or there's the you know there's, then you see people you know. Like it was this, it was uh, it, it was really it was very. I think for our, for our bureau, like it was kind of personal for a lot of people because they they live here, no you know, and they were so they were they were very invested in in covering it properly. Well, we appreciate you doing it. We appreciate you making a little time for uh, for us today, and uh, and we owe you a pint when things settle down a little bit, and uh, or a glass of wine, whatever you like. We don't judge around <laughs> here, right? But uh, thank you so much for making some time today. All right, thanks, man. See you at the Royal Oak. You will. All right, that was Glenn McGregor from CTV News. As I said, uh, great to get a chance to talk to him, have a little bit of perspective put on this whole thing, and and just what the hell just happened in our nation's capital, and. And man, why there might be more of it here as we move forward, as people continue to feel a little bit uh, disillusioned, a little bit unrepresented, um, 
it's a bit of a mess we find ourselves in right now. But uh, glad that Glenn was able to give us a little bit of perspective and take us inside what he saw over the last couple of weeks. Uh, we'll wind this one down here. We are on Twitter and Instagram at Tall Can Audio. Make sure you give us a follow there. You can uh, give us your thoughts on everything you just heard or uh, make sure on your podcast app there, you're following, you're subscribed, whatever they call it there. Um, Make sure you're clicked on it. We got more great stuff to come later on in the weekend as we continue to go. Uh, Thank you all for listening to the Tall Can Audio Podcast. My name is Matt Robinson, and we'll see you all next time. That was a hot mess inside a dumpster fire inside a train wreck. It was a disgrace. Thanks for listening. You can get more TCA at tallcanaudio.com or by searching Tall Can Audio on your favorite podcast app.